with your co-anchors Michael Popak and Karen Friedman at Diffalo. Uh, Post-Jan 6, Day 6 episode, we're going to talk about Cassidy Hutchinson's historic and devastating testimony uh, before the Jan 6 committee about her former boss, Mark Meadows, and her ultimate boss, Donald Trump, and ask the question that's on everybody's mind, does it now allow prosecutors to charge Trump with a crime based on an overt act that Cassidy identified in her testimony? Then we're going to turn to the Department of Justice, who has been very busy in their own right, having conducted two raids in the last week. One, they went to, he calls himself Johnny Eastman. They went to Johnny Eastman's restaurant, which means they were surveilling him. And on the way out, they picked up his iPhone and asked him to open it and got all sorts of, I'm sure, interesting information off of it. At the same time, or in the same week, they raided in a in a dawn raid, a la Rudy Giuliani, Jeffrey Clark's house, sending him out to the street in his pajamas and picking up all of his electronic uh, devices to boot. And we'll talk about that as well. We'll talk about the Supreme Court's yet again, second time in two weeks, the hits just keep on coming against the church and state separation, ruling that Joe Kennedy, not that one, has the right to kneel um, after a football game, and that's not a violation of church and state. And then we'll end it with our uh, update of Ghislaine Maxwell and the Jeffrey Epstein scandal and her being sentenced by Judge Nathan. Whew. I'm exhausted just given the rundown. Karen, how are you? I'm good. It's been a big week. Oh, God. As somebody, I was going back and forth, as I'm sure you, you have been with friends, family, and colleagues about what I now call the triple play of terrible decisions last week by the Supreme Court that you, me, and Ben have covered at our YouTube and our podcast is still up there covering the uh, church and state, uh, guns, and of course, abortion decision all landing on our desk like a thud last week. We, we didn't even have time to talk about another one, which you and I will pick up probably after the break, uh, the holiday break, is the uh, decision on Miranda and the court's Supreme Court's decision that you can have a Miranda violation, but it's not a constitutional violation for which you can sue anybody over. Uh, we didn't even have a chance to cram that in because of the momentous landmark decisions of the Supreme Court. And now we have Cassidy Hutchinson, the um, who will go down, I'm sure you agree, as historically, as one of the most devastating um, testimonies against a president ever in the halls of Congress. And we're going to talk about that. But let's kick it off with two of our f favorite incompetent lawyers who had worked with Trump. There's so many to choose from when you talk about incompetent lawyers. But the two we're going to talk about today are Professor Johnny Eastman and his iPhone and Jeffrey Clark, the ne'er-do-well environmental lawyer who had his eyes set in the last 10 days of the Trump administration on being the acting attorney general and using the Department of Justice as a tool to bash the, the proper transition of power and what happened to them and what it means about the Department of Justice. So, Kara, why don't you talk about what happened to Johnny Eastman and Jeffrey Clark, and then we'll talk about it from a prosecutor and defense attorney standpoint, what it means about the Department of Justice and their development of their, of their grand jury investigation and ultimate indictments. So it's clear that the Department of Justice has now moved towards the lawyers of uh, 
that that sort of surrounded Donald Trump, and that's where their investigation is. Apparently, they are their grand jury subpoenas have gone out to others in addition to Clark and Eastman, the two developments we know about. And what what happened on Wednesday was, as you said. Um, Mr. Eastman was stopped coming out of a restaurant and uh, they seized his cell phone. What was interesting though, what came out about that is so normally we wouldn't find out about it or even hear about it or learn about it because investigations are by their very nature, um, not necessarily publicized or spoken about if you're in the government. But Mr. Eastman uh, filed a motion right away in court to compel the return of his property. And so in that, he spells out all his complaints and gripes and what he thinks is wrong with what they did by taking his his cell phone and uh, and also attached a copy of the warrant. And there's a lot of nuggets in there that I think are worth talking about. So, for example, you see in there, by virtue of the fact that the um, warrant talks about they're going to take the phone and process it in the um, in the lab of the Department of Justice Inspector General's office. So even though it's the FBI seizing it, what that tells the world is that the Inspector General is the one who's doing this um, investigation. He also says, you know, I... What, never- that, what does that mean to you? Yeah, so he says he says I've never been an employee of the Department of Justice, uh, you know, a government employee. Therefore, because the, the Inspector General typically um, only investigates current or former employees of um, of the government, and then anyone associated with that investigation. So what that tells me is that this is about Clark, and we know that that very same day they because went, Clark is a member of the Department of Justice correct, at the time. Correct, and and we know that very same day that they went in and did that pre-dawn raid of Clark's house. So so that's number one. This is all related and and orchestrated and coordinated and choreographed in such a way. And and they do that they do things like that so that. You know, these people know that if, if he goes down, I go down because we are co-conspirators. Conspirators. So if he if they execute a search warrant on one, the next thing he's going to do is pick up the phone and call his co-conspirator and say, hey, get rid of all the, the way, evidence. Not to, not to um, uh, overly pat you on the back because I do it all the time. I've never, I haven't seen any other legal commentators make the link that you just made which, which so, with such ease because of your background. And I think it sounds so right. That that, that, that that doesn't mean that Eastman is out of the crosshairs for his own criminal prosecution, not related to, um, to, to Clark, because he's got his own fake electors problem that I'm sure they're investigating as well. But this particular, let's pick up his iPhone 13 Max as he leaves whatever restaurant he was leaving. I think that link that you just made between him and Eastman and the timing of it is really um, an, elo- an eloquent um, observation that I haven't seen made anywhere else. Yeah. So, you know, that, it just seems to me that it's a very coordinated investigation, um, and that they are, the, the, the heat is on, you know, the circle is closing, whatever, whatever analogy you want to, you know, you want to draw, but it's, it's happening for sure. And so he, he made a few complaints about, uh, about it. Um, so 
number one, he said that they didn't show me. So the law requires that you have to, when you execute a search warrant, you have to give a copy of the warrant to the person that you are serving it on. Right. You know, so Eastman's premises. complaining. Eastman's just to be clear. Eastman's complaining about the execution of the search warrant, and you're going to you're going to go through those items now. Yes, exactly. Well, he's complaining about two things. He's complaining about the execution as well as the substance. So um, two things. Um, He's complaining about everything. So luckily, so he says, you know, in terms of the execution, he says, oh, they didn't show me the warrant that they're required to do. Well, there's thankfully there's a video um, that shows, you know, that shows this. And guess what? Outside outside the restaurant or the FBI was filming? No, I, I, you know, it's a good question. I don't know who took the video, but somebody did. And, um, and it shows that they handed him the warrant right afterwards. It's practically simultaneous. I mean, that's way faster than any, you know, that's the way they do it. They're not going to hand it to you first. I mean, they have to secure him, secure the property. It right. took all of like three seconds. And then they should- I mean, by the, by the, to, to stop right there, just like on television, there's, there's some things that do match up with television. <laughs> if they, if they said, FBI and they pull out the badge and he's got contraband on him or the item that is under the target, like a phone, all he had to do was like smash it on the ground, throw it into a, exactly. an aquarium. Exactly. Or so they need to, as you said, they need to secure the evidence. Exactly. So that's clearly what they did. And then they handed him the warrant. Then he's complaining that it doesn't spell out a crime. So the substance of the warrant, he's saying. Well, no, no, go go back. He's complaining that they made him use his Oh, the biometric data. Yeah, so I'll get to that. I'll get to that. Yeah, okay, go ahead. Do it. We'll do it now. So another complaint he had was that they are, that they required him to give over his biometric data, meaning however your phone is open. Some phones are open with your finger, some are open with your face, some with your iris, you know, whatever it is, whatever your biometric data is. And, you know, when when iPhones and, and those types of phones first started coming out with biometric data and passwords and all of that, it was very confusing for law enforcement because you can't compel someone to speak, right? They have a Fifth Amendment right against um, being forced to incriminate themselves. And so you can't compel speech. So asking someone for a password, for example, you can't do. um, But they're not asking you for anything. They're just taking your finger and putting it down or holding it up to your face. let Let me ask you that. So doesn't doesn't that normally even include for the Fifth Amendment, and I'm not totally up on this, but maybe you are as a former prosecutor, compelling um, blood samples and semen samples and DNA samples. Hasn't that been found to be a Fifth Amendment violation or not? No, you have to have a warrant. You have to have a warrant. Um, But no, you can also do that. So and that's done all the time to get, you know, whether it's. blood in, in a drunk driving case and you want to get blood to see your blood alcohol level if someone died for example you'll do a warrant to seize your blood or same thing with dna or semen in a sexual assault case you can you can compel someone and it's a warrant that you have to that you have to get for those things but but you can't compel someone to speak you can't compel them to give you your password so you know doing this sort of biometric data is it's actually you compel them to give you the finger no, you, exactly. Well, you're just going, you know, you can, you can, you can put your hands behind their back, you know, for handcuffing and you can go like that. 
Um, so, you know, it, look, it is a new area of the law that I'm sure will be tested. It's something that law enforcement is doing, and we'll see if it kind of holds muster. I think it will, but that's that's sort of what they did. Yeah, in other words, that. you think when you say you think it will, you think he will his challenges will be denied by the New Mexico federal judge, where he's filed. I guess he was picked up at a restaurant in New Mexico uh-huh. and moved to quash the execution of the of the. Um, the subpoena, the warrant, which, which to remind everybody, we'll talk about it in Eastman too. These FBI agents through attorney, uh, U.S. attorneys had to go to a judge and convince a judge. Let's think of this hurdle, which they did for Giuliani too. Convince a judge that lawyers who normally have some sort of privilege with a client have are involved with a crime. It's more likely than not that they committed a crime and that for which this search warrant or, or execution warrant have to be executed and got a federal judge in a uh, confidential um, application, at least for now, sealed um, and not public, to sign off on, which is an extraordinary thing. I want people to understand, it's, especially Republicans that listen to the show. It's not like they just woke up one morning, typed up a search warrant, and just decided which on the enemy list Joe Biden they wanted to go execute it on. you got to go through a federal judge. That's true. They got to go through a federal judge. And so normally what happens is you, uh, an FBI agent has to go before a federal judge and swear under oath and provide an affidavit that sets forth probable cause to believe that what crime was occurring and that there is evidence of that crime on a particular, at a particular place, in this case, a cell phone. And you have to be specific. You can't just it can't be a fishing expedition. It can't be. It has to be probable cause to believe that there's evidence of a crime, and so they spell out the crime and they spell out the evidence, and they're they're very very specific. And as you said, the judge has to sign off on that. And though that affidavit and that warrant are what the judge signs, but the law only requires you to give a copy of the warrant, which is a one or two page, very basic thing that says. This is the person that you have that, that, you know, this is the person or this is the item and this is what I'm looking for and I'm the judge. And, you know, it's very specific, but it doesn't give all the juicy details of yeah. what crime and what the facts are. And that's what, another thing that Eastman was complaining about. He wanted the affidavit, which he's not entitled to. And that was yet another one of his many complaints about so, this. So you want to move on to Clark? And what happened with that? Well, sure, but one other thing I just want to say about uh, that I noticed about this warrant that I thought was interesting, even though the warrant was to cert- was to seize and search the phone, I noticed language in there that the FBI said we won't s- we won't search it. We're just seizing it until it goes before another judge um, who can talk about the parameters of searching. And I believe, and this is just reading the tea leaves, but I believe it's because he's a lawyer, and there's going to be lots of privileged information contained on there and so they're going to have to put parameters in place to make sure that they don't in any way violate any attorney client yeah. privilege stuff and they went through a lot of that with judge carter on the civil side yeah. when eastman had to produce all of his emails but i don't think a lot of his texts and so no that that's a very good point that it's now going to be preserved for a judge to help pick through the minefield of privilege versus non-privilege but i think he's waived his privilege i think it's i think it's crime fraud exception he's gonna to have to turn over all of these things but let's get to mr clark and let me preface it by reminding people if they'd listen to the listen to the hearing which i'm sure all of our people are are, are on their edge of their seat that um hirsch hirsch hirschman who was in the white house formerly a lawyer for trump 
testified that when John Clark, who, uh, sorry, Jeffrey Clark, who tried to become in a coup of his own making under Trump's direction, tried to take over the Department of Justice from the number four slot. This was like a mid-level environmental assistant attorney general <laughs> who decided he wanted to get to the top because Trump wanted him to in order to use the Department of Justice as a vehicle to tr another vehicle, one of the seven steps of the conspiracy that Liz Cheney outlined to stop the peaceful transition of power. One of the ways he wanted to do that was to, two ways that, that um, uh, has been people have testified about. One, he wanted the Department of Justice to issue an announcement that they were investigating fraud in the election, especially direct to the Georgia officials. And of course, wrote, thank God, Rosen and Donahue and even, and even Pat Cipollini in the, in the office of the legal counsel for the president said no. And so that was good. The second thing, apparently, Jeffrey Clark wanted to do was to impanel a grand jury in order to give the imprimatur of um, validity to Trump's bullshit claims about it, to which Eric uh, Hirschman testified that he said, now, you know, cover your ears for those that are listening at a different hour. He said to, he said to, uh, he testified that he said to Clark, congratulations, effing asshole. Your first act as the new attorney general will be a criminal, be a criminal act huh. of, um, uh, and a felony. Congratulations. He's picked the right person for this. This is, talk about cannibalization going on. This is a Republican Trump lawyer in the White House talking to Jeffrey Clark at the time and so precious, presciently identifying, just as we're going to talk about with Cassidy Hutchinson, crimes that these people were worried about were being immediately committed by the others. So Jeff Clark, in his pajamas, gets raided at dawn at the same time the uh -huh. Eastman phone gets picked up. Karen, take it from there. <laughs> yeah, no, they, they, you know, they're looking for evidence. They're looking for evidence of, of these crimes that you just you know spelled out whether it's going to be documents or computers or cell phones and you know what's what's sort of interesting is is the department of justice has two different ways they can gather evidence so the, the more kind of tame way is you issue a subpoena and it's a you know a grand jury subpoena they have grand juries and they are issuing subpoenas all over the place and and Typically, when you're investigating a crime that with somebody that you think is potentially not guilty and you're still investigating and and maybe they're going to, you know, you think they'll cooperate because they're legitimate people, you issue a subpoena and you allow them to produce this information. It's only the, the it's, it's very extreme to issue a, a pre-dawn search warrant in your pajamas, you know, where you, you go in, you know, with, with guns and battering rams because you're so, because this person is so either dangerous or a criminal that you right. know they are going to destroy evidence. I mean, it just shows you what the Department of Justice yeah. thinks of. Yeah, of and, and how about message sending? The message sending is you haven't been cooperative. It's like Giuliani when they raided him 18 months ago and picked up 20 you know, electronic devices. They could have given Rudy the benefit of the doubt and his long, illustrious career as a prosecutor and yep. coordinated it, coordinated a, a self-surrender of these items with his lawyer. And they said, no, we don't, we don't want you to cooperate. We want to come knock on your door for you and Mr. and Mrs. Eastman and literally in your pajamas and put you on the street while we execute our search warrant because you're not going to get the respect that we would normally extend because, listen, 
I assume they've either had some contact with him and his lawyers, or, as you said, fearing destruction, fearing that these people will they'll put nothing past these people and the depths that they will sink to protect Donald Trump even today indicates that they're going to knock down doors and battering rams in order to get what they want. And I love the message that's being sent by a Department of Justice, which is sort of beleaguered on the Twitterverse under Merrick Garland for not being tough enough against Trump and the and the inner circle there. I think we're seeing a escalation of muscularity by the Department of Justice. And, you know, they're, they're, they're employing the exact same tactics they would employ if they were... Um, if they were investigating a crime family like the mafia, and you know, well, and, they are. And, no, they clearly are. And I think the other the other thing that I think everybody's going to have to really kind of be able to stomach is the fact that they're going to have to flip people in order to get to the top the way you would in any mafia family, like you know, Sammy the Bull Gravano or whatever. You know, there's some really bad people who have done really bad things who you're going to have to give a pass to well, in order to get direct evidence. You might have to nod on this one because of your past background, but I assume one of the reasons that Alvin Bragg is having some difficulties with the Trump prosecution is by now they expected someone below Trump to have flipped either the CFO or the CEO or something like that. This is where Kerry gets the blink and nod. Um, but no, I mean, that, did, that, that didn't happen, and it's made the prosecution there that much more difficult. Yeah, I think that's true. I think yeah. it's true, but I think I think yeah. you're going to see some of that here because you you still need non hearsay, admissible, direct evidence to be able to bring criminal charges and prove a case beyond a reasonable doubt. That is such a perfect segue. <laughs> hearsay. What is hearsay? What is non hearsay or hearsay accepted statements? And why? We're going to move to Cassidy Hutchinson now. Why was her testimony in two hours could be the tide turner against Donald Trump in a criminal prosecution? We're going to go there right now. Let me set the stage, turn it over to the former prosecutor in Karen. Michael, Michael Be- uh, Beschloss, the uh, world famous uh, American presidential historian, is on record this uh, yeah, after yesterday is saying that never in history, never in history has he seen such a, sh- a shocking, incredible amount of testimony against the former president in the halls of Congress. And I I totally believe him. And how do I know that her, uh, Cassidy Hutchinson, the former chief of staff to Mark Meadows, her testimony is so damaging, it blew a hole in the side of the Donald Trump warship. All you got to do is read Donald Trump on Truth Social or whatever the heck it's called. He, he, he said, I love this inconsistent comments. I don't know her which is impossible. I don't know her. I saw her handwriting. She looks unstable based on his handwriting analysis. And three, she's a snitch. Well, which is it? If you're a snitch, it means you're telling the truth, but the other person just doesn't like it. I know. You know, like like in a jailhouse. So is she a snitch because she's telling the truth, but you don't like it? Or is she not telling the truth because you think she's unstable, which is the misogynist attack that Trump does against every woman that's ever testified against him about anything? It starts with an attack on her emotional or psychological makeup, which is projection because there's no one more um, off kilter than Trump. There's one line I'll, I'll leave I'll leave you with before we talk about um Cassidy Hutchinson and the cannibalization of the Republicans. About two months ago, a 
a reasonably well-known Republican, said the following. He said, I'm not saying that Donald Trump should be committed to a mental hospital. I'm just saying that if he was in a mental hospital, he wouldn't be able to get out. Which I think is a great, a great line by one Republican against the other. So now you have, and you and I both commented on the Midas Media Network's coverage, and we're still, uh, we're still doing that all the way to the very, very, the very bitter end. Um, and we already commented uh, about what we thought uh, Hutchinson was going to testify to. And it was even more devastating for Trump than even I thought. So just, let me just set the stage here. Um, we've got former chief of staff. She is with Mark Meadows and ultimately Donald Trump at every critical moment that matters, even the things she didn't testify to yesterday. She was involved in the phone call setting up the meeting in Georgia for Mark Meadows. She watched Mark Meadows burn papers after uh, a, a conversation involving Jeffrey Clark. Um, she was there on the ellipse. She was there for the planning leading into the Jan 6th. She was there for the private fly-on-the-wall conversations with Mark Meadows, with the the director of security, uh, Tony Ornato, who we'll talk about today, uh, who's the deputy chief of staff responsible and, and current and former Secret Service director responsible for the protection of the president. Um, she was there for all of that. And um, she gave testimony, which fell into a few buckets. Most of it was stuff that she observed as what we call a precipient witness with her own ears and her own eyes. And she testified very powerfully and courageously about that. Some of it is stuff that she heard from other people, but falls into the category of non-hearsay because it's either an admission against interest or some other exception to the hearsay rule. And some of what she identified is really credible, but will require other witnesses like Tony Ornato, who, who is the one that knows what happened in the limousine with Donald Trump when he tried to grab the wheel for him to testify. And that's all okay. No witness is so omniscient that they know everything about anybody at any time with firsthand knowledge. And it's okay. I know the Twitterverse is all of, all all a Twitter about all a flutter about, oh, some of what she said is right hearsay or hearsay within hearsay. No. Most of what she said had firsthand knowledge and is not hearsay or hearsay accepted. And then there's a small category for which there's more work to be done by the Jan 6 committee or the Department of Justice. And that's okay. It doesn't undermine Cassidy Hutchinson's credibility or the veracity of her testimony. So let's talk about the things that you heard. And I particularly want to focus, Karen, on the criminal conduct that she identified by Donald Trump related to the ellipse and the armed spectators and what you think about it as a as a former prosecutor. Yeah, so I, I think it's a good place to just remind people that, you know, this is not a criminal prosecution. This is a congressional hearing, right? And so what would ultimately, and, and no one's trying to pretend like this is a trial, you know, with where, where the rules of evidence apply. Really, what, what this, what if you if you sort of take a step back and you look at all of the hearings that have happened so far, it's clear that this is a roadmap to the prosecutors of this is what this is what's out there. These are the witnesses you would call, and this is the evidence that's out here, and this is how you would prosecute. And they, they take it like each day is devoted to a different set of crimes, and I, I think it's actually brilliant the way they're doing it. And and Cassidy Hutchinson, which you know 
they sort of decided at the last minute, you know, she wasn't a surprise witness in the sense that she had testified before them four different times, but they suddenly decided to have her give live testimony. Um, I think for a couple of reasons. I think it's, I think they're coordinating with the DOJ and the fact that DOJ's investigation is happening in real time during these hearings to me shows that. And I think for whatever reason, whatever they all know and whatever they're coordinating, they felt it was time that, that she, that the American people see what she has to say. I'll give you two more reasons. I'll give you two more reasons. One, I think Jody Hunt, who's her new lawyer. I don't know if you, you know Jody over at Austin and Burton. Yeah, I, I know Jody by reputation. He is a very sober, credible, former official. Um, he, he was a chief of staff for Jeff Sessions, of all things, which gives him a particular insight into the anti-Trump world, into the Trump world, and I assume was a Republican. Um, once she changed counsel, I think the whole tenor of her representation changed and her level of cooperation. And I think Jody communicated to the, to the this is my speculation, that Jody communicated to the Jan 6 committee that, that his client is getting both well, what you and I would call witness tampering, mm -hmm. witness interference type communication from those around Donald Trump and disgusting threats against her life that makes her testimony um, and her safety and preserving her testimony really, really important right now. And they're about to take their July 4th break. And I think they wanted to they wanted to end to set up like in pool, you set up your next shot. I think they're setting up the, the July 8th sessions off of this. But I think they're also concerned about preserving her testimony and not I having agree. it continue to be because that's why Cheney at the end talked about witness tampering and witness interference. Boy. What do you think she about sure that? She sure did. Exactly. I think you're exactly right. She just yeah. basically looked everyone in the eye and said, we know what you're doing. Back the fuck off. You know, and that's basically it's true. That's basically love, what, what she said. That's why I love Karen on my show with you. That's why I love going with you. No, no, don't I apologize. apologize. I don't say the F-bomb enough. <laughs> Uh, anyway, so I, I'm sorry, this just gets me so angry. Um, yeah, but so, you know, I thought that she was just absolutely, it, it's only today, you know, I was watching it yesterday and I and I was, I, I realized, oh my God, you know, it was a lot of, oh my God, what is she saying? But it's today, after 24 hours of processing that, that you realize how significant her testimony is. You know, yeah. first of all, she, she shows that this was not a spontaneous kind of attack on the Capitol. She shows that that on January 2nd, uh, Giuliani was talking to her, you know, she called Rudy, was talking to her about the plan. And she talked to Meadows about the plan. And so there was clearly something going on. Rudy said, you know, something like it's going to get intense or I don't remember what he said, but it's going to yeah. get, you know, something like that. So I thought that was really, really interesting bad. and very important for, again, an ultimate criminal process. Meadows saying it's going to be bad. It's going to exactly. be bad. Exactly. And then, you know, to me, two people who are going to have to be compelled to testify. So don't forget, the Department of Justice can compel testimony by immunizing people, right? Sure. So you subpoena them, and and if they take the fifth, you can give them, they can be given immunity and then compelled to testify. And, you know, that's a very delicate balance to decide who to immunize. And you, you always want to immunize down below to get to the top. You never want to go the other direction. So two people who 
I think, uh, who I predict are going to be compelled to testify and if necessary, given immunity, are Tony um, Onorato, who you said, and Ornato, and Ornato, and and Engel. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, those are two people who I think, you know, um, Cassidy Hutchinson kind of spelled out throughout all of uh, yesterday. Um, so how critical they are, and how they are the ones who have all of the firsthand knowledge of the fact that Tony. Ornato told Trump that people had weapons, that they would be violent. You know, I can see if, if that's true, if he told, if, if, if that turns out to be true, I see him as a critical witness uh, yeah. against, against Trump. I think the fact um, that, you know, Trump wanted so desperately to go to the Capitol and to be a part of that march and to potentially even go inside, you know, that there's, there's going to be a lot of that testimony that both of them can talk about, you know, everything from the, you know, the steering wheel to the choking out, you know, all of that just shows how, talk about unhinged and out of control. You know, he loves to call her unhinged and out of control. She, boy, did she do a good job showing that he was unhinged and out of control. Um, and, and I think they are critical witnesses yeah. in that. Before you leave Tony Ornato, let me tell people who Tony Ornato is. And, and I, you're right, he's either going to get immunity or Biden's going to give him a pardon um, because he's so critical here. It's critical to the crime because here we have a witness who's not talking about everybody was all wringing their All the Democrats and everybody that follows our podcast was all wringing their hands about, yes, but if he reasonably believed that he won the election, does that defeat criminal intent and mens rea? Forget all that. The crime that... Um, of inciting a mob, which is a, which is what you would expect, is a federal crime. The Federal Anti-Riot Act and the inciting insurrection and rebellion uh, crime, which is five and ten years apiece, that goes to, on Jan 6th, Trump being informed that his crowd was armed and dangerous. And they gave him a list, Tony Ornato and Hutchinson's testimony, AR-15s, handguns, spears, uh, personal body armor, and the like. And, and what was his said, response? And the Secret Service said, the reason we can't fill your ellipse here is because we're using the mags, the magnetometers, um, to, to, as a metal detector. And he said, no, fuck the mags. Fuck that. Let them come through or as they are. They're not, the they're not going to hurt me. Get rid of the mags. And then he said... They're not he here said, to hurt me. That's what I said. He's not here to hurt me. And then pointed this armed mob, as you've always said, pointed a gun at the, literally, at the Capitol saying, I don't care for my own personal safety. If they're not going to shoot me, we know who they're going after. They're going after the Capitol and let it happen. Now, Tony Ornato, just so people know who he is and the, and the validity that he has... He is the, currently the Assistant Director of the United States Secret Service Office of Training. He has served three presidents as the Chief of Detail for the Secret Service, for Bush, Obama, and Trump. At that moment, he was, for, he was um, assigned or, you know, kind of co-assigned co both at the Secret Service and to be the Deputy Chief of Staff under Meadows, who is responsible for the security of the president and all those around him. The Secret Service reported that they knew leading at as early as 9 and 10 o'clock in the morning, remembering that the riot happened at 1 or 2 o'clock in the afternoon, that the, that the uh, crowd was armed and that they would likely overrun the Capitol Police. They knew all that. This is all new information. 
Trump being informed of this by Tony Ornato and others, and Meadows having been informed of this by Tony Ornato, on purpose went forward with the ellipse and then pointed that loaded, armed, and dangerous crowd directly at the Capitol. That, yep. I would think, Madam Prosecutor, <laughs> is at least two done. federal crimes. Is it not? No, of course. I mean, and, and I think Cipollone is another one that they're going to have to, Absolutely. that they're going to consider. You know, to me, it's it's Ornato, Engel, and Cipollone are the three that you, you subpoena or they'll come in willingly. And if, like I said, if necessary, immunize them. And I think those three witnesses with Cassidy Hutchinson buries the president on that day. Uh, 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 100%. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the rest of it is, I found, great for the future TV and movie uh, filming <laughs> of this. Like, you could just see the giant president, like, lurching and the, grab the steering wheel and throwing his food, literally like an infant, against the wall. That's all great. But the crime that she testified to yes. is knowing that the crowd was armed and dangerous and still go, not only going forward with his own his own parade, but pointing that armed and dangerous crowd, knowing about AR-15s and guns and weapons and spears at Nancy Pelosi and the rest of the elected officials. And, and Mike Pence. Yes, and the hang, if you remember the stuff about yeah. hang, Mike Pence, hang, hang Mike Pence, he was told that uh, the crowd was breaching the Capitol and saying, hang Mike Pence. And um, and Meadows, and, and Cassidy Hutchinson was talking to Meadows about it and saying, this is what's happening in real time. And he says, the president doesn't care. He thinks he right. deserves it. Now that is, now that for the, I'll, I'll throw one bone to our listeners and followers. That testimony. Is hearsay. On, on Meadows is hearsay, but probably hearsay accepted because that's a statement against interest or something like it. The Trump comment to Meadows, the Meadows comment to her may not be, is probably hearsay. However, however, there's other places to get this information. And I think he is dead in the water. The more he tweets and social truths about the problem, the more he tightens his own noose around his own neck from a prosecutor standpoint. Is that right? Absolutely. But, you know, so 100%. So when you when you talk about potentially immunizing witnesses. To me, you know, again, to get them to testify if that's what's necessary, if they take the fifth. To me, if I was the Department of Justice, the easy calls would be Cipollone and Engel and Ornato. The tougher calls, the Sammy the Bull calls that are go- they're going to have to make are Mike or Mark Meadows and yeah. Jeffrey Clark. And those two right there might be necessary at a certain point to yeah. get to certain crimes. I don't that's know a very that good they're necessary. That's a that's very good be- observation. People are going to have, so I think what you're saying is that our listeners and followers and others are to manage their expectations. They may have to hold their nose and swallow the fact that somebody high up one or two rungs just below the president may get a free pass in order to cook the president. Correct. Giuliani could be another one. So we'll see. I know. I mean, listen, they are grabbing Giuliani by the scrotum (laughs) and Meadows, and they haven't yet squeezed as hard as they would like to, but that's all the activity that we're seeing. Giuliani's in harm's way in Fawny Willis's Georgia prosecution. He might go down as easily there as at any other place. Uh, Putting aside the Ukraine investigation in his old shop at the Southern District of New York, he's had so many many. many criminal, you know, guns trained at him 
And then did you see over the weekend, he's also a fake crime victim? Did you hear this? Oh, he got so, slapped at a shop right. It's on video, thank God. It's on surveillance video. We see some guy walk up to him and just like barely, like t- it's almost like, you know, hey, so, hey man, like smack like, him on the back. He said, hey, bit, say, hey, he said, hey, scumbag. But yes. Yeah, I, but I still, you know, it was it was not a hit. And, well, and Mayor said, Adams, Mayor Adams is on record now. You, you want to report that? What did Mayor Adams say? She basically said, guess what, Giuliani? You know that falsely reporting an incident is also a crime. You know, <laughs> you, you faker. You know, there's right. no crime there. Like, it's such a ridiculous... Giuliani's like, I felt like it was a gunshot. Really? Uh, And for people that think Giuliani has slithered back under the rock under which he's crawled out, he he is daily actively campaigning in the state of New York to help get his son, Andrew Giuliani, elected governor of the state of New York. And he's going to, uh, did they have that Republican primary yet? I don't know, but he's got to be, it's, it's, I, I think Andrew, Andrew yeah. uh, Giuliani could be the, um, the candidate against Hochul. I think he loses badly, but Did that's what he's there, doing every day. Wasn't there an issue when, when Giuliani was mayor and his son wouldn't speak to him? And <laughs> is that, do you remember any Yeah, of that? there was a falling out. Yeah, that, that kid, if anybody just wants to laugh, because he got it occasionally, just go find um, the late Chris Farley playing eight-year-old um, the, the son at the father's swearing in that Saturday Night Live did 25 years ago. I gotta watch um, that. Oh, it's hilarious. And the kid's now all grown up, and he's got this father's same bullshit, false, misplaced bravado for no reason. He's never done anything in his life. He's never accomplished anything in his life. He has no body of work to speak of. But that never stopped anybody around Trump or the, or the Giuliani's from that. So, all right, let's... So we got we've got Tony Renato, I agree with you, critical witness, identified Cassidy Hutchinson under much duress. You could just tell from her listening to the clips of her in deposition where she was kind of giving private deposition, and now with the glare of the Klieg lights of testimony and all of that, I mean, she's a courageous young woman. I don't think anybody could have watched her and come away with anything other than what a witness. How powerful, how courageous. I don't care if she's going to write a book in the future. Who cares? Mark Meadows wrote a book. She should you know, write a book. Peter Navarro's writing book. I let people, somebody tweeted online today, like, she's writing a book. I'm like, who cares? Everybody is writing a book. It doesn't matter. I want to read the books. The books I'm not writing are a book. The, well, no, but these people, these the, the books kidding. are chapters in history that need to be written by those involved, even if they're like Meadows and they're full of you know what. Let's move on. We're going to follow her, but let's move on from Cassidy Hutchinson. And let's move to our Supreme Court. Haven't they been busy little beavers the last week or two? The keeps on giving. I'll tell you, man, the hits just keep on coming. And now they they decided that um, the right-wing, ultra-religious, conservative majority of the court, um, whereas in past years, I don't know, you'd get like a church and state ruling every 15 or 20 years. We get a church and state ruling about every 15 or 20 minutes with this court because they're just not done uh, with their pronouncements about what they see as the, what I see as the, um, under the First Amendment analysis for them, freedom of expression of religion and um, First Amendment speech in general is greater than, to use that symbol, the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment. And under almost no circumstances, except for the classic one, is the is this Supreme Court ever going to find 
that even if public funds are used, public property is used, um, or otherwise, are they going to find a church state violation? They're always, this, this group is always going to find that free exercise trumps the Establishment Clause. So now we've got uh, Joe Kennedy, not that one, who was a, um, about seven years ago, was an assistant football coach who took to praying after the game at midfield um, on a public high school field. And he was fired for that and other reasons. And he claimed he, his, first, his First Amendment rights to freedom of religion, freedom of expression, and freedom of, um, freedom of speech were all being violated. And in past years, before this current group of six to three got on, he'd probably lose. But this group has never seen any personal private conduct, whether it's running a flag up a flagpole in Massachusetts, whether it's using public funds um, in uh, the recent case that we just covered in uh, Maine, using public funds for schooling, whether it's using public funds to resurface a church playground. Um, if it's personal, private, and the government or the governmental entity is benefiting a public entity, they're going to have to benefit the one related to the church as well. Um, so says the 6-3 to three majority of the Supreme Court. So the one we talked about last week was in Maine, just so people aren't confused. Like, there's another one? Yeah, there's a new case. Uh, the one in Maine was written by Chief Justice Roberts, and that one found that tuition assistant programs like um, vouchers if a state is going to provide them at all, they need to provide them even-handedly to both promote religious education and parochial uh, public education. So that was last week. So no surprise this week, they also found that if there is a free exercise of a person's personal, private, religious speech, even on a school grounds, that is not going to violate the Constitution at all or the Establishment Clause. And Gorsuch, who wrote the opinion, went one further, which we anticipated. I think Ben and I covered this one with the oral argument because Gorsuch called out, um, the before we knew he was going to write the opinion, called out the lawyers for the state and said, what is the rationale for the state under strict scrutiny analysis for having uh, fired him or tried to prevent him from uh, praying at midfield? And they say, well, Your Honor, uh, the lemon test under a case from the 70s involving the Supreme Court. And Gorsuch said, why are you using the lemon test? That has basically been so discredited by the other Supreme Court rulings that that should never have been your test. And he and so he already questioned the lemon test. The first thing he took away in this new Supreme Court ruling is the, the use of the lemon test to decide whether there's a there's a violation of church and state. Now the new test, the new test, is if you have a First Amendment expression, the and you do, then you go to strict scrutiny, so that the government has to either prove that there was um, uh, that there was there was narrowly tailored. To resolve the issue, and there's a compelling governmental interest to stop, in this case, kneeling and praying at midfield. What do you think about that decision coming on the heels of last week's main decision that we discussed, Karen? So, you know, I had a, I had a, something happened to me when I read this decision that I don't think has ever happened to me before, which is, I read the majority opinion, and this might be a little controversial to you, but I was like, 
I kind of agree with them, you know, the way they described it. I'm like, just like I think Colin Kaepernick should be able to take a knee. I think if you're Muslim and you want to put, you know, your your rug down and do your prayer, I think you should be able to. I, I, I actually don't have a problem with that. And when you read the decision, that sort of kind of the way they the way they they um, presented it. Then you get to the two concurrences, which I've never seen concurrences that are like one sentence, you know, it's so bizarre. They, it was like, again, these very strange concurrences, but then you get to the, uh, the dissent and that's, and this is what never happened to me before. They, it's like they're talking about two completely different cases. In other words, I couldn't believe how misleading the majority opinion was factually. And that's why I had that feeling of, well, I kind of agree with them. But when you read what the actual facts are here, they completely misstate the record. They totally ignore. In what way? What were the facts in the dissent that you don't think were properly recited in the uh, majority opinion? So this, the majority opinion made it seem like after the game, the, um, the students are on their way back to the bus. It's his belief that he can just very quietly and privately go to the 50-yard line, take a knee, say a prayer that, of gratitude, and then get on the bus and go. Personally, I think that's not a problem. He can do that. That's just my opinion. But... You know, and I think that it doesn't violate the First Amendment at all. But then you get to the actual facts of the and, and the whole dissent, the whole uh, majority opinion was was I was willing to just do that. I said I would just do that. I don't. They're they're giving me a hard time, even though I said I would do that. You know, and he, they just he, they totally misstate the fact that there's a long history there. Of it started with doing it privately. Then he had um, players come join him. Then he asked the opposing team to join him. Then he would give motivational speeches where he would recite Bible verses. There were other students and coaches who said, um, or I'm sorry, players, athletes who said, you know, look, I'm, I'm afraid of retaliation or not being promoted if I don't join. Yeah, he didn't threaten me, but if I don't join the prayer, right. I might not, I might be disfavored. So he, he was told multiple times, don't do this, don't do this. He kept doing it. Uh, and then he, so he was upset that that he that they told him you can do this privately. You just can't do this group, you know, Bible kind of whatever he was doing. And um, and so he went on TV, did a whole media uh, thing, and he called all these people to the game to protest and to you know get upset. And so then they started getting death threats, and these satanic people started you know people on the field were coming down and and joining. So you know people aren't allowed on the field. And then the satanic group said, "I'm going to come and I'm going to go on the field if you're letting these religious things." I mean, so now it's not about speech or religion. Now it's about controlling a, a dangerous you know situation, distracting from you know the crowd and I mean distracting from the game and what this is supposed to be. And people are complaining, and they totally don't say any of that. So his fake you know kind of oh yes, I, I'm just trying to go on the field by myself and do this you know is is clearly not. Well, I agree with you. What it shows you is that we saw it in the oral argument that this Supreme Court will never let a proper recitation of the facts get in the way of making and reverse engineering the law that they wanted. And we saw it because at one point in the if I remember correctly, in the oral argument from several months ago, um, one of the right wingers on the Supreme Court. I want to say it's Alito, but it might have been someone else. 
actually said, the facts here are so messy. You know, did he get fired over this or not? Did he get fired over something else? Let's not focus on the facts. <laughs> I'm like, wait, stop. Unless this is, unless we've now completely changed what I learned in law school about the Supreme Court not being a not being a place for advisory opinions, that there has to be a live controversy between the parties that comes up on a record that they can only use the record to establish. Sometimes cases being proper vehicles for new law, sometimes cases because of their facts, not. We've now seen this on at least two or three occasions this term where the Supreme Court says facts be damned, the facts are messy, but it doesn't matter because we want to make a new law as a new pronouncement because we got the numbers in the area of church and state or in the area of Miranda or in the area of Fifth Amendment or in the area of whatever. It's like we don't even need cases. I think I said this on a prior podcast. Why do we even need cases? Why do we skip the cases? Why don't we just make them oracles who sit and divine the law? Tell us what it is. Tell us, mere mortals, what the law is, and we will follow it like we're in some sort of Greek mythology. But that's not supposed to be our democracy or the three co-equal branches of government or the Supreme Court since Marbury versus Madison. So what, so let me, since we're continuing our theme today, what the F is going on with the Supreme Court and they're just... It's clear. It's clear. They don't yeah. give a shit about the case. They're not even making a They're not even trying to pretend. No, they don't care about the case in front of them. It's like, will the lawyers stop talking? And will you stop talking about the facts so we can... We've already written the opinion. It's in the back. We just want to bring it out and announce it. So stop talking. So true. So true. What happened to the law, the adversarial process in this country? It has now completely been ripped asunder. It's, it's fucked up. <laughs> I'm sorry. I hate, to, I hate to leave people on this note, on that note of the Supreme Court, but it's it's effed up. Um, and we will. I you know we'll have Karen on again because I think that. By the way, the change case. the you change the, the legal AF the F now for this episode is effing. Yeah. Like <laughs> what know? legal AF and like what is up? Yeah. We'll do it. I'll, I'll I'll um I'll talk to Ben. I'd like to. I think the three of us should do um you know in the summer when it's the news is a little slow and some of us are on holidays or whatever. You know, I think we should do an overview of the Supreme Court term and the top ten cases and what it and what it means. It was um, fun doing that, a show with the three of us. Yeah, no, I, I thought it was great. Um, I thought it was great. So I, also, I you had to it. jump on a plane, so you know, you, we, we, couldn't, we couldn't let we couldn't let Ben just do it alone. You know, I, so. uh, no, I would never do that. <laughs> I would never allow that. Um, so, but yeah, I think we're going to do the Supreme Court rap. <laughs> Speaking of raps, let's end the episode with. Um, just a quick update. There's not really much to say at this moment, except to tell people who have been following Legal AF from the beginning what happened to Ghislaine Maxwell. She, the, the, the pimp, the fluffer, the co-conspirator, <laughs> Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, Jeff um, and what happened fluffer. with Judge Nathan, who for a moment, interesting, um, who's already on the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, somehow I guess they're able to step back into their role as former trial judge, which I thought is interesting, I know. And, and do the sentence. So, yeah. so, so, you know, Friday she's at the Second Circuit looking at her briefs for oral argument on appeal, but here she came back out and put on up another black robe. Well, she probably has her. to recuse herself when this goes up on appeal. Oh, oh, without a, without a doubt. <laughs> and it is. So, so, so they, since that's already the case, why yeah, not step so. back down and, and sentence her? So she's like deputized for the day to do the sentencing for the case that she handled. And the um, just to frame it for our listeners and followers, the the uh, sentencing guidelines 
We're at the upper extreme of 50 years, five zero years for her. And the prosecutors were pushing for the entire uh, maximum under the federal sentencing guidelines with all the aggravating and mitigating factors. They wanted her sentence to 50 years. And of course, you've got the uh, sentencing reports, the pretrial sentencing reports that are prepared by this independent, sort of independent government entity that issues their recommendations as to the uh, formula in the sentencing guidelines, the the evidence on both sides, exculpatory and, and, uh, and otherwise, the um, other things submitted by the defendant. You know, they do their own sort of submission to the sentencing committee, to the um, sentencing uh, group, uh, talking about her life and her. I, I saw some of it in the paper: sexual abuse when she was a child, and you know, she had she didn't have a good relation with her parents, or whatever, you know, whatever happened to her. And they then factor that all in, and. And Judge Nathan didn't go along with the 50 years. She didn't go along with the eight years or so that that uh, Ghislaine's lawyers recommended. What did, she, what did she finally do, Karen? She did 20 years. So it was uh, an interesting 20 years plus a $750,000 fine and you know, post-release supervision and that kind of stuff. It was sort of interesting because a few little interesting things that came out during the sentencing. Uh, number one was... The fact that she had to, the, the sentencing guidelines and the sentencing statutory schemes change over time. And this crime that she was convicted of occurred between 94 and 2004. And there was a different guidelines and statutory scheme back then than now. And so depending on which one you use depends on whether it's a higher number or a lower number. And the judge went with the lower number saying, otherwise it would be ex post facto. You know, in other words, it has to be the law as it existed at the time. And so she went with that lower calculation and the probation report recommended 20 years and she, she she went with uh, the 20 years. Um, the government, I think, asked for 30 or more. And, you know, look, some of the things that the judge pointed out was that she never apologized. She never showed any remorse. Um, all she did was so basically throw it on okay. Epstein, says, you know, she regretted meeting Epstein. It should have been Epstein. I'm just a proxy because, you know, he, kill, he killed himself a month after he was arrested. So he barely spent any time in jail and never had to face any charges and he's the real bad guy and I too am a victim of of him you know and I, I I'm not a predator she said this in the sentencing right yeah she, well she said this um in both her the, the lawyers <laughs> they filed a sentencing memo and in that is where a lot of that came out so you're, and, so you're like dead for our listeners and followers you lost your trial she had a full-blown trial she put on this defense already at the moment, I know it sounds weird, but at the moment you're about to get sentenced, yes, if you're going to go up on appeal, I guess you have to keep a consistent story and say, oh, I was just a pawn in Jeffrey Epstein's world and I'm a victim too. And I guess you got to keep that story going. And that's not going to help you get credit from the judge in your sentencing, especially when victims are there for the sentencing and, and said that it was crocodile tears on her behalf. We don't accept it. She's never accepted responsibility. And, you, and, it's, and it's tough because... If you do, if you accept responsibility, you kind of fucked your appeal, right? If you maintain your innocence, yeah. but right. So I think that's why she had to do it. But that doesn't, that doesn't, she's not covering herself in glory with Judge Well, Nathan. but she, but she can say, I'm so sorry for any pain that I caused without admitting to being, you know, to do any crime. 
I, I don't know. I, I just, whatever. She didn't apologize at all. Not really upset the victims. They said it was sort of a final insult that she can't do that. And I think the judge did a really good job at kind of showing why she wasn't just, you know, that she was a predator too. She wasn't yeah. just, you know, it wasn't just Jeffrey Epstein. That she too was a predator, and she she had a hand in in Big you know in really pretending to fake mentor these young girls and really lure them into grooming. That, that's exactly. a proper use of grooming as a term. Yeah. It's, it's taken yeah. out a weird connotation. And by the way, they engaged in threesomes half the time, so yeah, right. it's not like she didn't. Do, you know, she did all of the above. So, all right. And so we'll, was, we'll yeah we'll follow the appeal as you said, Judge Nathan won't be there. They'll have the sentencing issues on the appeal. They'll have the the runaway juror who, you know, the one we talked about earlier from Britain, a, a British American, who testified that, you know, he talked to the jury about his own sexual abuse and memory recall issues. Right. They right. So thanks for dropping by. And please do wear a mask in public indoor spaces. Please call Congress 202-224-3121. And especially the DOJ, 202-514-2000, demand criminal indictments and put it out all over social media. Thanks. And see you next time, man. Cheerio. Bye.